<laughs> oh boy, that's a tough one. Who would I say that Jesus is? I think it's likely he existed as a person. The only human who ever lived a perfect life. Son of a, no, was he a carpenter? He was a carpenter. Yeah. He was a good guy. Yeah, and he's also like a, like a picture of ideality, like a picture of work, a picture of extending care, a picture of love. Um, and as far as that's concerned, I would want to mirror him. I think he was clearly an illuminated man. I think he changed um, the course, in a way, of um, human humanity. Almost like a link between all religions. Um, I think what's remarkable about, about Jesus being one with God is that he, he would associate with us. <laughs> The magic of it isn't important to me, but the fact that he was kind of a real guy who who existed and had a following and like died for those beliefs and that those causes of like treat others as you would want to be treated, that sort of thing. That's the important thing to me. So I mean he was really definitely tapped into something. I think he was tapped into the core of what a lot of religions and spirituality kind of revolves around. If he didn't die for our sins, I mean we'll be dying for our sins. So all these fabulous concepts were presented by this person called Jesus. Whether it's real or whether it's just a figment of someone's imagination, that's irrelevant. There's so much anxiety and worry in our world today uh, over this past year and everything that's taken place that uh, people are searching, people are asking questions. And ultimately, this is the only question that makes any difference, is who you say that I am. Um, when I was growing up, playing sports, and if we went through a rough streak, right, we were playing bad, the coach did not know what to do with us, he would say, okay, we are going back to the basics. <laughs> we're going back to the things that we need to do. So we would do the most basic things that everybody knew uh, that just seemed sometimes, um, that everything that we should have known, you know, taking ground balls and just, you know, throwing the ball around the field seemed kind of silly. But in the day and age that we are right now, uh, with all the questions, I thought it would be good to just go back to the basics. Who is the person of Jesus? In three of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this conversation that is recorded for us that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he asks them the only question that really matters. They had just got done watching Jesus feed the 4,000. I mean, an incredible miracle. Uh, these guys had to have gone through the full range of emotions on a pretty regular basis. I mean, following Jesus for three years had to be a little bit of a roller coaster. Um, I mean, one minute, they're handing out food and wine's coming out of water jars, and then the next minute, he's turning over tables and he's sparring with the Pharisees and calling them whitewashed tombs. Uh, he's hugging lepers, and he's talking to Gentile women. I mean, following Jesus was anything but dull. Um, oftentimes it was a party, and oftentimes they had to stand around a little bit awkwardly while he fought with uh, the hypocrites of his day. And in some of those moments, there's so much emotion, right? It's easy to get swept up in that. Uh, and Peter, we kind of be like Peter sometimes when he's on the mountaintop. He's like, man, we are on the mountain. This is incredible. Let's build some condos here, <laughs> right? One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. We'll all just hang out here on the mountain. And Jesus says, no we got to go back down to the valley. And so, Jesus chooses a very low-key moment to talk to his disciples about one of the most important things, the most important question. It's interesting because they are just on their way to Caesarea Philippi. They're just walking along the road. 
No fanfare, nobody else around just then. And Jesus says, who do the crowd say that I am? Which is interesting. That's a very low, uh, low risk question, right? Because he's asking, what do the crowd say? And he's kind of priming the pump a little bit. Get him thinking about the conversation and he asks him the question, what do other people think about me? And these people knew about crowds. I mean, they had just been around 4,000 people and they knew what they were saying about Jesus. So, he asked them the question, what does people think about me? Now, what was Jesus doing? Was he fishing for a compliment? Uh, was he uh, down that day and needed a pat on the back? No. He was trying to engage them. Jesus taught the crowds, but he loved to engage other people. And so he starts this conversation with them. And they start throwing out things that they heard. Uh, one of them says, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. And, which is interesting because John the Baptist and him were on the scene at the same time. Um, but we read in Luke 9 that Herod had actually had Jesus beheaded. Uh, Herod had taken his brother's wife, and uh, she didn't like it very much because he was calling out some of the family dysfunction that was happening there uh, with Herod and with his uh, wife, with his brother's wife, actually. And uh, her daughter comes in and dances, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And her mom says, give me John the Baptist's head. And uh, he was pretty sorry that that went that way, but um, John was calling out the things that were wrong in that, uh, in that time. And so Jesus' ministry is starting to take off right as John the Baptist is being beheaded. So there was a, a thought in that day by some people that um, maybe somebody's spirit could come back to life, and if they did, they could bring special powers with them. Uh, we don't have any recordings of John doing a miracle. But Jesus comes on the scene, he's doing all these miracles, and think, well, maybe John came back, he's got all these powers, and he's the one that's inside Jesus doing these miracles. That was one theory. They said, some people say that you're Elijah, the prophet of power, right? The prophet that was taken up in a chariot of fire. He didn't die. So, well, he didn't die, so he didn't die. Maybe he's back on the scene. I mean, he had lots of power. He's doing miracles. And here Jesus is doing all these miracles. Maybe it's Elijah. They said, some people say Jeremiah. Like, maybe it's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he was called. He would weep over Israel. He was begging, he was weeping over them, begging them to come back to the Lord, and they didn't listen. They said, look at Jesus. He is like a shepherd. You know, he's telling the people, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Come back to the Lord, is what he is asking people to do. So they said, well, maybe, maybe it's Jeremiah reincarnated. So Jesus poses the question, what do other people say about me? It's always easier to give other people's opinion, right? We could say, don't shoot the messenger, right? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying, this is what people are saying. So very low risk. And so Jesus goes from broad generalization to very precise, right, personalization. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in my mind, um, I'm thinking, how long did that question hang out there? And Jesus asked the question, was everybody just kind of standing? Did Peter have his response ready to go? Or was everybody kind of standing around looking at each other like a Zoom meeting, you know? Like the brain punch, you know? You're looking around. What's everybody going to say? And then Peter jumps out and says it. Was everybody like, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so Jesus asked them this question, not for engagement, but to consider the level of their faith. Okay, guys, you've been with me for a little while now. Who do you think that I am? 
But leave it to Peter. Peter, leave it to Peter. I thought that would be a good sermon title. I'm going to type that away. Leave it to Peter. <laughs> brought to you by Simon Barjona. I'm going to use that. But he says, he jumps out. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mic drop moment. Right? Boom. That's what he says. He's the one that said it. So whether or not he beat everybody the punch or whether or not he said what everybody else was just thinking, he's the one that said it. And here's the thing. It would have been really easy for Jesus to ask that question when they were handing out bread or when he was walking to them on the water. It would have been really easy for Jesus to ask that question when emotions are high. But he doesn't. He asks, now, why this confession? Why now? I mean, you had multiple confessions. When Jesus was calling his disciples and he called a guy named Nathaniel, uh, Andrew went and got him. And he said, listen, we found Jesus. We found the Christ, the Messiah. Um, and Nathaniel is skeptical. He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Andrew's like, come and see. And he shows up and Jesus sees him coming. He's like, there's a Jewish man without any deceit. Andrew's like, do I know you? He's like, no, but I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. Nathaniel's like, you must be the son of God. And he's like, if you're impressed by that, there's going to be a lot cooler things than that that you're going to see. And then Luke 5 tells us that Peter, uh, when Jesus is standing in the boat, and he gets done talking, he says, now throw your nets on the other side. And Peter's like, listen, preacher man, we've been fishing all night. This is our job. We know what we're doing. Jesus says. So he does. And says that they are bringing in so many fish that the boat is beginning to sink. And at that point, he's like, Lord, you have got to depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And so he makes a confession. And in John 4, we have Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. And he's talking to this uh, Samaritan woman, of all people. And he's telling her all about her life. He's like, go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. You don't have one. You've had multiple. And the one that you're living with now isn't your husband. And she runs into the village. He says, come and see this guy who told me everything I've done isn't he the Christ. So you have all of these confessions. But Jesus chooses now with his disciples to ask this question. He waits till there's no fanfare. There's no emotion. There's no crowds. Just Jesus looking at them in the face. And so too in our lives, it would be easy to answer that question uh, when times are good, right? Like, praise God, we got the house. Or, praise the Lord, the deal at work came through. But, or even when we're in, you know, a big group setting and we're all singing the same tune, it's easy to answer that question. But what do we say in the quiet times when we're all by ourselves, uh, when it really gets real? I mean, where are we gonna stay, Jesus? Like, it's getting late. <clears throat> Like, what are we going to eat? We just fed the 4,000, but these goofballs didn't grab any bread, so now we don't have anything to eat. I mean, we have some real practical problems here that we need to deal with. And Jesus says, who am I to you? That's when he asked him the question. And it's great because at this moment that Peter makes his confession, that's when Jesus reaffirms Peter's name. He actually changed his name when he first met him. He called him. Uh, he comes up and he says, you're Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. That would be really strange. You come up to somebody and say, hey, my name's Nathan. I'm going to call you Eric. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who is this guy? And so when he makes this confession, Jesus reaffirms who he is. He publicly reminds him. He says, you're no longer Simon. 
And Simon means shifting sand. That's what his name meant. You know, I'm into names. They're significant. Um, he was very unstable. Uh, and he says, now your name's Peter, which is rock. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Let's read it together. This is Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 17. It says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this verse causes a little bit of confusion because uh, Jesus called Peter rock, and then he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And so it's one of the reasons why, at least in the Catholic faith, they believe that Peter is the first pope. And uh, while he is staring, you know, standing at the pearly gates, checking people in and out, right? Um, actually, I guess you don't check out. You only check in. Um, because it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against him. But if we look closer, Jesus called Peter. He says, you are Petros with an O, P-E-T-R-O-S, which means stone. It is rock. But it's a stone. It's like a, you're a step up from shifting sand, Peter. You're a stone now. And then he says, on this Petras, P-E-T-R-A-S, I will build my church. On this huge, massive, immovable rock of your confession. The church is built on the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And if we want our lives built on the rock, if you want your life to be solid, to be stable, it needs to be built on the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son, is the Savior, is the Christ. But it's even more personal than that. In, gospel, in John's Gospel, in chapter 20, we see Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. And she came on Sunday morning. It says that she came while it was still dark. She came as early as she could. As soon as the Sabbath was over, she was there. Love compelled her to the tomb. And I will just say that there is... Um, eternal value in meeting with Jesus first thing in the day. First thing. That's what she did. Um, if we don't meet with Jesus in the cruel of the day, then we can't be surprised when we don't feel him in the heat of the day. Right? There's eternal value in meeting with Jesus early. It paid off for Mary. Doesn't mean we have to spend an hour in prayer. Uh, if you do, if you've got Lisa too, if you put that on your heart, awesome. But if you're not doing anything, do something. We all have 24 hours in a day. Um, grab a copy of My Utmost for His Highest and one page a day, and it'll knock your socks off. It'll be a good step. But be intentional about spending time with Jesus. Okay, let's read the account in John 20. <coughs> Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and as she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And uh, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. That's pretty cool. 
Jesus said, well, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Mary makes it personal. Um, they have taken my Lord. She didn't just say they have taken the Lord. They have taken my Lord. Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary. Seven. We only have one other person in the Bible that we have that more than that. This guy was lived in a graveyard, right? They put, they put chains on him, and he was so strong. He had so many demons in him, they would break the chains. When Jesus met him, he said, who are you? And the demons answered out of the guy, we are legion, because we are so many. But he had seven that he cast out of Mary. The Chosen, season two, starts tonight. <laughs> I'm excited. I told you guys about The Chosen. It starts tonight. You can watch it on the app or you can watch it on the Facebook feed. Today is an amazing day. It's Easter. The Chosen starts again. <coughs> Baseball's back. Praise the Lord. I'm going to have ham later. It's good. One of my favorite characters in The Chosen, though, is the guy Nicodemus. And while the Bible doesn't tell us this, there's a scene in The Chosen where he walks in to Mary Magdalene's place because she is possessed and he's trying to do um, he's trying to get rid of the demon, he's trying to do an exorcism. And he goes in and he's not able to do it, he actually gets thrown out, right? And then the next day he sees Mary Magdalene out on the street, and she's in her right mind, she's completely healed, and it rocks him majorly. Because it's a changed life, that's the power of God, is a changed life. And he sees her and he becomes obsessed with finding out how this came to be. So he starts looking for Jesus. Uh, we learned last week in Galatians, as we wrapped up, that God is not into outward shows of emotion, right? Or showy religion. He doesn't care about that. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He knew about outward showy religion. He knew about hypocrites. The day Jesus was crucified, uh, Nicodemus went with a man called uh, Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Jesus um, so that they could bury him. This was significant because people who were crucified did not get burials. They didn't. Uh, and so for them to go to him was a big deal. And we, we read that and we think, well, man, that's pretty cool. Like, that was nice of them to go ask for the body so that they could bury him. But this would have cost them everything. Okay? Most of the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and they succeeded in doing that. So for him to go and say, I want the body, I want to bury him personally. I want to take care of him. I'm going all in to show everyone, to tell everyone that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior. I believe that's who he is. Would have cost him his job. Would have cost him his position. Would have cost him his future. But he didn't care because it was personal. Jesus had made it personal to him. And Mary has changed because it's personal. She had a personal relationship with Jesus. There would have been a real temptation at this point when she walked into the tomb and saw the angels, uh, to become distracted, to become impressed with the angels, right? She could have seen them and taken off and told everybody about the angels that she'd seen. But after she talks to him, it says she turned around and she ran into Jesus. Um, I can be distracted very easily. And unfortunately, I think in our day and age, uh, people can be distracted with a lot of things or impressed with a lot of things and start to chase after the wrong things. Uh, we are supposed to be about spiritual things, right? We're supposed to have the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. We're supposed to be moving in the Spirit, have the manifestations of the Spirit in the church. But we're not to become obsessed and chased after 
spiritual things, okay? Uh, some people chase after the effects, the results of moving in the Spirit. It says that signs and wonders will follow the believers, but believers are not to follow after signs and wonders. There's a difference, right? Those kind of things should always lead us back to Jesus. They should always point to the Savior. And so they're sitting there, the angels, and she turns around and doesn't face Mary. She runs right into Jesus. Uh, and this, is, this isn't going to do it justice, but there's a big, uh, beautiful picture here. And uh, if you think about it, she walks into the tomb. There's a, there's a big slab, big stone slab that Jesus is laying on uh, that would have been blood-stained. And you have an angel at the head, and you have an angel where his feet would have been. And in the middle, you have this folded-up linen garment. Again, <clears throat> this is a picture of what? Does anybody know? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant that was inside the temple had an angel at one end and an angel at the other end. And they had their wings spread out, almost touching. And underneath the wings, you could see the tangible, visible Shekinah glory of, the, of God. And this lid that covered that covered the ark was known as the mercy seat. That's what it was called. And so one day a year, the high priest would get to go into the Holy of Holies. He would have the blood of the sacrifice. He would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Right? He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. The angels, the blood on this stone slab. And then we have this linen garment. What's that about? Well, God said when they go in to serve in the temple, they're only to wear linen. Can't wear wool, can't wear any mixed garments, anything like that, no polyester. Uh, because that makes you sweat. Wool, cotton is workwear. You're only to wear linen when you're serving because it's not supposed to be about what you can do, not about your works, but about what he's done. I think that's pretty amazing. That's something that Jesus has shown us um, that is a foreshadow, that actually is a fulfillment of what he's shown us in the Old Testament. The angel told Mary, uh, come and see, right? Come and see. And then Jesus said, go and tell. So because she was there, she got to come and see and then she got to go and tell. Back then they didn't have TVs, they didn't have television, right? They didn't have telephones, they didn't have telegrams. So how are we gonna get the word out? Well, the fastest way to get the word out was to tell a woman. <laughs> that was the fastest way to get the word out. <laughs> Don't send me emails. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Biggest news in world history. And it's given to these women that are there. Now, they were off doctrinally, right? Jesus said, I'm coming back to life. I'm three days, I'm three nights in the tomb, and I'm going to be raised again. They were a little off doctrinally, but they were right devotionally. They were there. Their love for Jesus put them at the tomb. And this is a beautiful thing of grace. It really is. Because although their doctrine was a little off, God saw their devotion. He'd say, you know what? These guys weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. I can't entrust them with the message. God said, I see their devotion. They're there. The thief on the cross, he didn't have any doctrine at all. But he found devotion when he was there on the cross. God said, I can use that. To be able to go and tell, you have to be able to come and see. Uh, when the Holy Spirit draws a person and sees Jesus for who they really are, for who he is, and who they are in his light, they're not going to have a trouble going and telling. Um, as I was preparing this, something hit me uh, actually yesterday, and I was thinking about it. Uh, there are two people 
three people actually, that are mysteriously absent from the Easter story. Three of his really good friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Those three in Bethany. Mary of Bethany, Lazarus, and Martha. They're not there. Why? I would suggest to you, don't know this, Nathan's opinion, okay? I would suggest to you that they knew, they listened, they got it. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm pretty sure he thought he could handle it, right? He brought me back from the dead. He could handle it. Where was Mary? Mary was at Jesus' feet, listening while he was teaching. She was taking it all in. She was listening to what he was saying. She was there. She poured the bottle of ointment, the perfume, over Jesus' head, an extravagant act of worship. I mean, this thing cost a year's wages. And I don't know about you, but if I had a bottle of perfume that cost, I don't know, $20,000, $40,000, I'm not using it, much less pouring it out on somebody, unless I believe they are who they said they were. And Jesus said, she has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Why? Because she wasn't going to need it. He was going to be raised from the dead. They're absent from the story. I don't know for sure. I just thought about that. I said, man, I wonder if that was the case. I wonder if these people who he was so close to got it. Another person who had to answer the question of who is Jesus was a man who was just part of the crowd. He just happened to be there. He didn't want to get caught up in this whole mess. And it was a man that we know by the name of Simon the Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is in Africa. It's modern-day Libya. And we don't really know if Simon lived in Jerusalem or if he was there from out of town, which is probable because so many people were coming from all over the world to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this would have either made him very rich or he would have had to have saved a long time to make the 900-mile journey from Libya, from Cyrene, all the way to Jerusalem. So he had saved. He, it was a big deal to him. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, um, not Bocephus, was in the country music. Somebody got that. Okay. Josephus tells us that this uh, city of Jerusalem normally held about 25,000 people. Uh, but during Passover, it could swell low end 250,000 people. Low end. Uh, and then it could have been north from there. And so out of all these hundreds of thousands of people, Simon, standing there, watching this whole thing happen, feels the broadside of a Roman spear land on his shoulder. And when a Roman soldier would do that, you had to pick up the burden and you had to carry it for a mile. Remember Jesus said, if somebody compels you to take it for a mile, take it with him for two, that's what they would do. They would tap you on the shoulder. And here Simon is just watching this whole thing happen. And he gets tapped on the shoulder. Let's read it together. It's Luke chapter 23. 23 verse 26. <clears throat> I hear pages turning. I like that. <laughs> and as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid, out, laid on him the cross and carried it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Jesus uh, could no longer carry the cross at this point. And uh, this was not an act of mercy on the soldier's part. Uh, not at all. Uh, either because they were going to get in trouble or because uh, they just wanted to see him suffer to the fullest extent. They knew he wasn't going to make it to the top. And they needed to get him to the top to crucify him. So they compelled Simon to carry his cross. Um, 
I mean, Simon <laughs> had me thinking, are you kidding me? I have saved all this money to get here? I'm just here for Passover. I mean, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or was he? In Mark's Gospel, in chapter 15, it tells us specifically that it was Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. <clears throat> Big deal. So what? Why is he telling us who his kids are? I mean, they weren't there. They didn't help. Well, Mark was written to an audience in Rome. Uh, he was not an eyewitness, but he had a mentor named Peter. Most Bible scholars are believing this is Peter's gospel. He is dictating this to Mark, who is writing it. And he's writing it to these people in Rome who would have known who Alexander and Rufus were. Are you with me? And then in Paul's letter to Rome, in Romans, he is actually listing off chapter 16, and he is signing off, and he's saying, you know, tell this person hello, and give a greeting to this person, and oh, by the way, give a greeting to Rufus, who is chosen in the Lord. He was chosen in the Lord, because his dad was chosen in the Lord. <clears throat> Pretty amazing. Um, people would have known who Rufus was. I mean, when this guy came walking down the street, uh, people would have said, are you kidding me? Here comes Rufus. His dad got to carry Jesus' cross. You have got to hear this story. His dad was just standing there watching all of this commotion take place, and he was chosen to help bear the burden. Something tells me that he did not leave once he got to the top. Something tells me that he watched the whole thing happen, that he watched the sky go black, that he watched the earthquake happen, and then a few days later, the news that he had risen from the dead, I think he was there, and it changed him forever. I think we can look at his son Rufus and confidently say that Simon made the right choice when he was faced with the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And there's something wonderful that happens when um, a father takes the lead spiritually for his family. You know, that's that was God's plan for the man to do that. And unfortunately, what's happened a lot in our society today is that men have abdicated that responsibility. They have given that up. Um, and just like Adam in the garden, Adam was supposed to be there to protect and watch over his wife. And when she was there being faced with the temptation to become more spiritual, he stepped back. He pulled back. And he let her make that mistake. Uh, I found some uh, statistics which were interesting. Um, the Promise Keepers and Baptist Press put this together. Listen to this. If a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. <laughs> if a father does go regular, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church as adults. This is about Bible study. When both parents attend Bible study, in addition to a Sunday service, 72% of their children will attend a Sunday school program. When a father attends by himself, 55% of the children will attend when grown. When only a mother attends, 15% of the children attend when grown. Another survey found out that when a child uh, is the first person in the house to become a Christian, only 3.5% probability that everyone else in the household will follow suit. If the mother is the first to become a Christian, there is a 17% probability that everyone else will follow. However, when the father is the first one that gets saved, there is a 93% probability that everyone else in the home 
will become a believer. <clears throat> Simon answered the question, and his family tree was altered eternally. Now, that is not to discount the place of mothers in the home, not at all. Um, that is extremely important. There's a reason why they say the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, right? Mother's influence cannot be replaced. But what I am saying is that when fathers take the lead, when they fill their role, there's something amazing that happens in those families. Uh, another person that grappled the question of who was Jesus was the Roman soldier at the cross, uh, the centurion, right? At least when I watched the movie this week, it was interesting, uh, came out a couple years ago, called Risen. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's from the perspective of the soldier that was at the foot of the cross. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I recommend it. So to be a centurion, you were leader of 80 men, minimum. You had 80 men under you. You either had that position because you were from a well-to-do family, but more often than not, it was because you were a great soldier. These were your actual real soldiers. Uh, they saw most of the action. They were pretty battle hard. So there wasn't anything that was going on that day that would have been a surprise to this centurion. I mean, they were responsible for carrying out capital punishment. And so nothing about this crucifixion up to that point would have been out of the ordinary for him. But this day was different. He would have been aware of who Jesus was. I mean, they had a sign made to hang above his cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. I mean, Pilate made it very clear. Everybody knew what was happening and the reason why he was there, but he didn't care. His whole job was just to make sure that that guy got crucified. But this day was different than any other. Jesus would have been raised up on the cross at the sixth hour, which would have been about noon. Noon. And then he's there until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. The Bible tells us that uh, things were happening there that had never happened before. Matthew 27, uh, Matthew 27, 45. Just go ahead and read it. 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on the reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. During all the crucifixions, this guy had done nothing like this had ever happened. There had never been darkness covered the whole land. There had never been an earthquake, and there had never been people terrified. When these people were just a minute ago just gambling for his clothes, now all of a sudden they're terrified at what's happened. Mark's Gospel specifically tells us that it was the centurion who made this declaration. I'm sure they were all terrified. James 2 tells us that the demons are terrified, that they believe, and they were terrified. Um, we can be terrified, we can be scared, but not let it change our life. Uh, this centurion was changed. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, this is, I can't talk about, this is why my sermons are so long, because I run into this stuff and I have to talk about it. Um, the veil, how tall are these ceilings? Like, I don't know, 12 feet? The temple curtain was 60 feet high. 
60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about 10 inches thick. This thing was massive. It would have taken roughly 300 priests to manipulate this curtain. And so they get it up there. And as we talked before, uh, there was no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And once a year, the priest went behind that curtain to offer the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, it had happened before. So what they needed to do, if you weren't right with God as a priest, when you went into the Holy of Holies, you would be struck dead. Like that, just being in God's presence. If you weren't atoned for, you had made atonement for your own sins. Apparently this had happened before because what they started doing is tying a rope around the high priest's ankle. That made you feel real good. Because if you died when you were in there, they just pull you out. So they didn't go in and get struck dead. So this is the situation. But uh, when it was torn, it was torn from top to bottom. That is significant. Uh, there was a song, if you've been in church for any number of years, uh, you know of a band, a Christian rock band named Petra. Is anybody familiar with the Christian rock band Petra? Uh, Petra means rock, but a rock band is very clever. Um, but there was a song that you sing, and it was very weird for them because they did, you know, a lot of rock songs. This one actually was, it's been redone by Cutlass, which is really good. But when I think about it, I think about this song. And it says, take me past the outer courts into the holy place, past the brazen altar. Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people and the priests who sing your praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. Take me in to the Holy of Holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. From the outer courts, past the people, past the priests that are singing, past the bronze altar, all the way in to the Holy of Holies. The blood of the ultimate Lamb that had just been shed. Uh, it's significant that the curtain was not torn from the bottom up. It was not torn side to side. It was torn from heaven to earth. This was God making a way so that the rest of us had access to him. What this must have done to the priests that were standing there right then, that would have been, and talk about life-changing, that would have been life-changing. But this soldier, this leader of men, watched Jesus beaten brutally, beyond recognition as a man, is what it told us. Beaten worse than any other man has been beaten. He watched him not respond to the mockers, not respond to those who were accusing him. Um, watched him actually speak forgiveness to his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then he watched nature's response, the earthquake that happened when Jesus breathed his last. And then he finally responded. This had to be the son of God. All right, all these people had to answer the question, who is Jesus? But what did Jesus say about himself? We don't have time, obviously, to cover everything. But I just wanted to cover a few things about what Jesus said. In Matthew 7, Jesus is wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached. Probably took him about half an hour. People probably said, you should take a lesson from that. Greatest sermon ever preached, only half an hour. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Back then, the religious elite of the day were the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, these guys knew everything. They knew every rule. They kept it perfectly. Uh, at least they thought they did. And if anybody should have known that Jesus was going to be on the scene, that the Messiah was coming, it should have been these guys. I mean, Daniel predicted it to the day 
that he was supposed to be riding into Jerusalem for the triumphant entry, and they missed it. But what, they, what would happen is these scribes would sit down, they would read the scriptures, and they would do commentary on it, but they wouldn't give their opinion. They would give other rabbis' opinions. So they would read the scripture, and they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and this other rabbi says this about this scripture, and so they're really just reading commentaries. They weren't giving their opinion. But when Jesus shows up, he is the commentary. He says, when, when he talked with authority, he said, you have heard it said of old that you're not supposed to murder. I say, if you're angry in your heart with your brother, you're guilty of murder already. And he does this a couple times. He's like, you've heard it said of old, but I say, and people were just astonished at his authority. He didn't come to, to preach feel-good messages. Uh, people heard him gladly because of his grace and mercy message, but he was also preaching about the reality of human sin but also the extraordinary lengths that God is going to to redeem his people. He talked with authority and the crowds were astonished. Um, one question I thought was important to ask is, are we content to just listen to commentators? Are we content to listen to what other people say about Jesus? Or are we willing to go learn about him ourselves? Uh, I love listening to teachers. I like to teach. Uh, but at some point, what you know and what I know need to go from our heads to our hearts. It needs to become personal. It can't just be something that we think about. It has to go from our head to our heart. Uh, it's been said that some people will miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance from their head to their heart. Um, we don't want to be those people uh, that just know something mentally, theologically, doctrinally, but it hasn't changed the way that we live on the inside. Uh, a relationship with Jesus should change us from the inside out. First and foremost, Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God. There are some that said Jesus never claimed to be God. He did, actually, on multiple times. Uh, Shakespeare asked the question, what is in a name? Have you read that one lately, Devin? No, not yet. <laughs> uh, what's in a name? Uh, we know there's quite a bit in a name, and I thought we would take a look at the first time that God ever gives us his name. Uh, God is talking to Moses, and he's like, Moses, I am going to send you to Egypt, to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And you're going to talk to the Jewish people. And Moses is like, well, who am I going to say sent me? And i got to tell them somebody sent me. I can't just say God sent me. Uh, they're going to ask me, who should I say? And God says, I am. And Moses is like, I am. <laughs> what? He's like, no, I am. I just simply am in the present tense. No matter where we are in history, no matter how, how much cultural norms change, he is. He doesn't change. And this fills him with a lot of comfort, uh, but also a lot of holy fear. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we repent. Right? But if we don't, if we choose to reject him, if we choose to go our own way, then there's going to be a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what it says. But this is the word made flesh. God does not change. God gives, every, or God gives everybody what they want. You know, some people say, how can a loving God send people to hell? Um, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose hell when they reject Jesus, when they reject God. He is a perfect gentleman. He gives people exactly what they want. Uh, turn with me to John 18. Um, this is one of my favorite Easter stories. Jesus is in the garden. Judas has gone and summoned these soldiers and the group. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where he was there in the garden, uh, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there 
with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, said to him, uh, to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. So uh, it's interesting because if you look, there's a footnote at the bottom when he says, I am he. In the Greek, it just says, I am. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, I am. And I look at this scene, and sometimes it helps just to kind of put yourself in their sandals uh, at what happened. They show up. Some people talk about how many soldiers were with them. It doesn't really matter. Could have been a million. The result would have been the same. Okay? They show up. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they all fall over. All of them get knocked to the ground when he says, I am. And then they stand up. And Jesus says, who are you looking for again? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> but he spirits with the knockout below this time. He said, listen, I told you that I am. I wonder if the centurion was in that group. I just wonder. I wonder about some of these things. It doesn't tell us in the Bible, but when I think about the stories and all the people that were involved, uh, I can't help but wonder if he was one of those that had just gotten knocked to the ground. In John's Gospel, we read, uh, Jesus made seven I am statements. Seven is the number of... Perfection. That's right. Perfection. Um, Jesus said this. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has told us who he is. He put the question to the disciples and now he puts the question to you and me. Who do you say that I am? That is the question that the door to eternity hinges on. Uh, there's a poem that's engraved on a cathedral in Germany, um, and it reads this. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. We all have a personal responsibility to take a look at our lives and ask the follow-up question. If we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, do we simply have a profession? Or do we have a possession? Do we have a relationship with him? Or do we simply have a confession? God's not into confessions. He's into relationships with brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. That's what he's into. There's a book by a guy named J.D. Greer that is called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. It's kind of a strange title, but I can guess the premise. God doesn't just want confessions. He wants relationship. He wants to go from here to here. It says that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, not with your mind, our mind is fickle. It changes. Yeah. Our head talks, but our, our, our heart walks. Our head talks, but our heart walks. 
Because of this sacrifice, we have access past the veil. Because of his death and resurrection, we have a mediator that is in heaven praying for us. Praying for you and me right now. Seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not anxious. He's not pacing in heaven, wondering if we're going to make it. He's seated and he's praying and we're going to make it. Amen? You know, I heard this song uh, that I asked them to sing that uh, king on both sides of the stone. And when I heard it, it blew me away. It's by a group called River Valley Worship. And uh, it just, <laughs> he's king everywhere. He is. He simply is. At any point in history, no matter where we are, he is king. Amen.